Thank you for joining our From the Field Farm Chat with Idaho Wheat today. We are joined by Scott Corbett, who's the Executive Director of the Port of Lewiston. I am Brittany, I'm the Executive Director of the Idaho Wheat Commission. And I just want to remind anyone who's on live for this session that you are more than welcome to ask questions of Scott. You can unmute your microphone, use the reactions button at the bottom of your screen to raise your hand, um, either of those options, and we, or you can put your question into the chat and we'll make sure that your question gets asked. So Scott, I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your background, how long you've been at the Port of Lewiston, how you got there, that sort of thing. And then we'll kind of jump into a conversation about what you do at the port and why it's important for Idaho wheat growers. Fantastic. Thank you, Brittany. Um, I have a strange pathway to the port. Um, I'm a Montana guy. I went out to school at the University of Washington, um, studied uh, biological oceanography, uh, ROTC guy for the Navy, uh, got my commission and was in for about six and a half years, uh, served as a navigator on a destroyer uh, for a couple of deployments. Um, got out, went to law school in, in, back in Montana, uh, practiced law in Montana for about 11 years or so before I got recruited into the wonderful world of human resources. Um, got to uh, take over a paper mills human resource kind of by default and that's what eventually got me to Lewiston, uh, where I was the first HR guy at this new company called Clearwater Paper um, that has recently spun off of Potlatch Corporation here in, in the Elsie Valley. Um, did that for a bit and, and ultimately uh, wound up getting me into economic development and uh, served in different economic development roles uh, for a few years before the longtime incumbent here at the Port of Lewiston, uh, David Dornsfeld. Uh, retired after about 30 years. So um, stepped into those enormous shoes and have been uh, pushing forward now with the port uh, for about 18 months or so. So relatively uh, new to the position. It's a, it's an interesting mix for me, um, but it's really about the only job around where I get to use a little bit of all of my background. You have a you have the the biology, and we start talking about fish and ocean conditions and things like that. Um, safe navigation on the river system. Um, legal comes into everything we do virtually every day. Uh, a lot of leadership in the HR side of things, and and economic development is the primary mission of our port. So um, I get to uh, I get to wear all my hats, which is really cool. Well, we are happy to have you. I think that the transition between you and Dave, who of course had been there for uh, several years, um, has been very smooth, at least from our end. So Good. we're we're thrilled to have you there. Can you give us an overview of the Port of Lewiston, uh, kind of its history and its role in Idaho's economy and the important role that it plays in Idaho's wheat industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say we're sort of the unknown gem of Idaho. Not everybody knows that Idaho has a port, um, but we were established back in 1958 through uh, an act of the legislature, and uh, we've been pushing forward ever since. 
Um, our life changed a lot back in the late 60s and early 70s when the lower Snake River dams were put in place on the Snake River in Washington State. And that really developed the means for commerce to reach all the way up into Idaho uh, on the river. Um, we are a multimodal hub for transportation, which means we can handle rail and, and barge and truck all through the port. Um, we are really fortunate that we sit in the uh, hub of some of the best uh, farm ground in the world. And the way to get that to the markets is through a port and on a barge. So uh, feel fortunate to be able to handle a lot of that traffic for um, the farmers in this part of the world, North Central Idaho, the Palouse and Washington State as well. Um, we are... I would like to say we are the economic development driver for North Central Idaho. Um, others might disagree and say it's somebody else, but for us, uh, we have the opportunity and the resources and the drive to make things happen for the Port District, which for us is is Nez Perce County, but also outside of the Port District itself. We start talking about some of the economic benefit that we provide to the region in the form of, of fiber optic cables and networks. Uh, we're, we're in the process of building a 95 mile fiber optic uh, network between Moscow down to Lewiston and then Lewiston over to Grangeville. That's gonna hook up with another network being built from the south to the north to provide Idaho with its real first ever um, north to south fiber optic network for all kinds of reliability and speed um, it's been a long time coming, but we're finally going to get it done. Um, more specifically for wheat, uh, we have a great partner here at the port called uh, the Lewis Clark Terminal, and they provide an opportunity for our local farmers to export their products down to the ports of Portland and Vancouver, where they head out overseas. Um, Lewis Clark Terminal has about 200 barges mostly of wheat that they send down river every year, uh, mostly soft white wheat that comes out of the Palouse and, and from the Idaho farmers. And almost 100% of that goes down to the export ports and heads overseas. Um, for a long time, uh, the primary customer there was China. Um, now it's, it's morphing a little bit as China's population is actually kind of in a decline. Um, it's morphing to some of those other countries where the population is actually growing, like um, Indonesia and the Philippines and and uh, uh, Japan for some for some part of that, but um, their population is a bit of a decline as well. So assisting our partners in Lewis Clark Terminal and getting all of that ability to ship those tons and tons and and upwards of twenty five million bushels every year downriver is a a huge part of what we do here at the Port of Lewiston. All right. Um, you just spent this week in Washington, D.C. Tell us about that a little bit. How was your experience back there? What's what's kind of the temperature, I guess, in yeah. the Beltway uh, regarding the river system and, and the port? It is It is really a hot button item right now back there. Um, for anybody who doesn't doesn't keep their finger on the pulse of this, um, there's been litigation about the Lower Snake River dams for a long, long time, decades. Um, it has reached a point where 
um, the current um, administration has taken steps to move it forward um, in ways that has never been moved before. Um, there was an order that came out um, just very recently, about two, two weeks ago, from a federal judge in Oregon that uh, basically stayed legal term, uh, put, a, put a pause on the litigation that was filed based on the old uh, EIS. Um, and now the process, which, choosing my words carefully, um, was, was put together um, over the last uh, 12 months or so uh, based on a, a mediation. Um, the, the administration, which was being led by the CEQ, Council for Environmental Quality for the administration, um, gathered what they call the six sovereigns. The six sovereigns being um, the states of Oregon and Washington, and then um, four uh, Native American tribes from this part of the world. And they came together and they established a document that uh, they wanted to put forward to drive how things move forward for the next five, 10 years, basically the roadmap for breaching these dams. And um, didn't really get a whole lot of say in that process. Um, we requested a seat at that table um, as part of other groups like uh, Pacific Northwest Waterways Association. Um, and we were defended interveners, but unfortunately we didn't get to be in the room when they were deciding how things are gonna look. Um, so that has moved forward. The judge has accepted that stay and these, um, these six sovereigns are now in a position to make decisions on how things look. And the government, the federal government has made commitments to spend a huge amount of money and time and effort to try to bump up the process for these six sovereigns, in essence, to um, constructively breach these dams in the next, I mean, depends on who you ask, zero to 10 years uh, to a point where they can come back to Congress and say, you know what, we're ready to take out these dams. We've done all of this stuff now and off they go. Um, honestly, could talk about that process for a long, long time. Um, that's the context that I'll give you. Uh, the flavor in Washington is, is it, it depends on how you ask the questions. If you ask the questions behind closed doors, um, you'll get a uniform answer that's, oh my gosh, we need to protect these dams. If you ask that in a public setting, you'll have some very, very boisterous um, support from our local congressional delegations for um, Idaho and Montana and, and even Oregon and Washington strongly coming out in support of the dams and everything that they provide. Um, folks on the other side of that aisle um, publicly can't really say a lot because they'd be going against the administration's um, guidance for how they want them to respond. So it's a very, very political situation. It's a situation that uh, is going to take a lot of work in influencing folks and educating folks about all the nuances of what the dams can bring and, and the economic development power that they actually bring and why it really is not in anyone's best interest, including the wheat farmers from the state of, of Idaho, to have those lower Snake River dams removed.
you said a minute ago that you could talk about the process for having the dams removed or breaching the dams for a long time. Yeah. For those of us who may not, it, there's a there's a lot of um, miscommunication or misinformation or just confusion about what that process is really. Who has the power to to call for the for the dams to be breached? Um, what would that process look, look really look like from a legal standpoint and politically? So since you offered. <laughs> Tell us, tell us how how that would play out and who really has the power to do that. Is it an executive order from the president? We know Congress is supposed to, but what's your yeah? That's a that's an excellent question, Brittany. Um, the reality is that only Congress can authorize the removal of the dams. Uh, that is consensus and it has been set on the record by everybody involved. Um, so there is that. The effort on the breaching side of things is to get enough information, rhetoric um, built up on the other side. So when they do come to Congress to make the request to breach the dams, and please don't make any mistake, that ask is coming. Um, they will have built up enough of a persuasive argument on their side that is that it has a chance of success. And this involves hydropower. This involves replacing the means of getting um, grain to market. It involves uh, unintended consequences of, of navigation. It involves a whole litany list of things that they now have money to try to to build and create. Um, the Bonneville Power Administration is a huge piece of this because they control so much of the power that comes out of those dams. And um, the, the six sovereigns are in a position to try to create enough power to totally, in their words, um, replace the power that's generated by those dams. So um, this money that we, um, Bonneville Power customers, are going to be asked to supplement um, is going to be used to try to create alternative energy sources, primarily solar, that can go ahead and replace what power and what um, you know uh, grid reliability is provided by those snow lower Snake River dams. So it, in the end of the day, sorry, long-winded, um, end of the day, um, only Congress can authorize breach. But this effort that we see that is in progress right now is to build up enough of a case so that when they go to Congress, and who knows what that next Congress is going to look like, right, or the one after that, um, they will have enough of a story to tell that there's a possibility that this happens. And honestly, it's the closest to a, a, an affirmative decision by Congress on that than, than we have ever been. And Which is really, stay, really scary. Really scary. It, that is scary. Um, the stay that you were talking about that does not prevent them from asking for that, or from for does not prevent Congress from making a decision it's, like that for five years. Correct. It's extremely narrow. Uh, it prevents these six sovereigns from continuing litigation or having new litigation on this exact same topic. 
it doesn't prevent you, Brittany, if you wanted to file a lawsuit on it, you could do it, or I could do it, or one of the six sovereigns could do it on a different issue, or they can pull out of that at any time and file their lawsuit. Um, when I was practicing law, we, we had some documents that we said, yeah, that's about as as valuable as the paper it's written on. Uh, and unfortunately, that is what this stay is as well. It uh, doesn't really prevent litigation. It just is a nice talking point that uh, folks can use to say, hey, man, we have legal stability here now with this. Um, that's kind of uh, form over substance. that that is a very uh cheery outlook for the future Scott. <laughs> all right yeah yeah it's it, it's a it's a tough spot right now and and that's why um the port of lewiston has made this issue really a top priority for us and and joe has given me the latitude to actually go and, and try to make a difference with groups like the one i went back with this week it was an interesting group. We had representatives, um, one representative from basically all the different types of river stakeholders. I represented the ports. We had somebody representing hydropower. We had somebody representing agriculture. We had somebody representing navigation and then the, the larger groups um, as well. So everybody bought a, brought a perspective and talked to congressional members and staffers that might not be familiar with things outside of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we talked to uh, a senator from Mississippi. We talked to a representative from Illinois. Uh, we are in Mitch McConnell's office from Kentucky and just educating these folks about what this is and what it isn't and how things could really um, set a precedent for the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, other river systems um, if we were to lose these dams on the Snake River during a process like this, it really could be a Pandora's box and just open up other opportunities for folks who want to breach dams across the country. And I really can't say how much we appreciate all of the work that you are doing on that front. This is, I mean, it it is a very scary reality. Um and we can't we have limitations we can't be everywhere so it's it's um really nice to know that we have uh effective people like you kind of trying to safeguard this on behalf of idaho's growers but also um if they were like you said there are lots of different ways that if we were to lose those dams on the Snake River, it would affect wheat exports across the country, not just in North Absolutely. Idaho, not just in the PNW, not just in um, in Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, but but all of U.S. wheat. A hundred percent true, Brittany. I, I had a wheat farmer in my office a couple of weeks ago, and I was asking him some questions about, you know, how would how would a loss of the barge system affect you? And he would say, well, you know, it, maybe um, it, it would it would add X number of dollars to my overall price per bushel, whatever. But he said, but that, that really doesn't matter. He said, well, I was confused. Why wouldn't that matter? He said, well, if we lose the barge, 
system, we would have to go to truck. We'd have to do something different. And there just simply isn't enough truck. So there's not enough drivers. There's not enough trucks themselves. So instead of talking about, you know, price per bushel that this is going to go up, he's saying, I cannot get my product to market. So, you know, the price increase doesn't matter if you can't actually get your your product where it needs to go to get exported over to the Philippines. And so he says the result is, you know, yeah, I might be able to survive, but 50% of the farmers around me are not going to be able to survive that. Which, boy, if you, if you call yourself the, you know, the, the feeder of the world, uh, especially from a wheat perspective, um, it, that, that's a bad, bad thing. And we are being looked at. Um, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, but the, the price point on these things is such that if we were to add considerable price to uh, our wheat as it goes down and gets exported, there are other options around the world um, if we can't meet the price point for some of these exports. And fact of the matter is we're going to lose the business. That's that's right. Unfortunately, um, about 10 percent of all U.S. exports go down the river Absolutely. Um, through the port of Lewiston. So that's I mean, that's very significant. Texas A&M actually did a study just a couple of years ago about what that would really look like as far as infrastructure and replacing the barges with truck and train. We don't have the infrastructure mm -mm. and we don't yeah. have a way to to build more or increase that infrastructure really. And then you consider all of the extra truck trips. I mean, it's 150,000 extra truck trips per day through that corridor. And and how much CO2 is that, right? Right, carbon emissions, it, yeah. it's just absurd how much effect that would have. And then you, 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 know, you start to consider energy costs and all of those things that the critical infrastructure that the dams provide to the entire PNW um, is is really incredible. It would so thank you for doing all that you can and spending days and hours and probably sleepless nights sometimes <laughs> working for us on on behalf of that that effort. Absolutely, it's. It's valuable work. Well, we are just about up against our 30 minutes. I see that, Joe, you turned your camera on. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want to make sure that if you have a question or a comment, you have a chance to weigh in. Oh, just turned his camera off. I guess that was a sign. All right. No, um, I was uh, I was looking for my mute button when I shut the camera off. Oh. Uh, the camera was off, so I could eat lunch. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Farmers Joe, feed you three times a day. You are yes, you have a whole wheat sandwich, right? Uh, actually, a whole wheat tortilla and uh, split pea soup. Oh, yum! Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, 
Joe, what what can you from the perspective of a wheat farmer who's also on a commissioner on the pork commission and a wheat commissioner? What message would you send to your fellow growers about the value of the port, the dams, and the river system? I think the best message for the my fellow farmers out there is to stay involved, uh, learn who your legislators, uh, senators and congressmen are and how to contact them. And when things happen in the political circle, sometimes silence means consent. So make sure that we're not contributing to the silence that uh, we just have to make our voices heard. So that's one of the things I try to do is both a wheat commissioner and a pork commissioner. And I would, um, also just say, don't underestimate the increase in freight costs uh, if we were to lose the competitive aspect of barge transportation. What somebody's estimate of what rail from a different part of the state today costs versus what it is when they have a monopoly, <clears throat> those are entirely different numbers. And yeah. the lack of options out there uh, just changes the dynamics more than we can even imagine. So. Yeah, one thing I learned back in DC this week is <laughs> the power and influence on this issue um, of the USDA. Um, obviously they're, they're attached to the administration, but there are, there are levels at the USDA that really do want to um, take note of these sorts of of damaging potentialities and uh, and work behind the scenes to try to get the best result that they can. Obviously their hands are are pretty much tied being you know linked to the administration, but um, there are there are folks there that can help. Immediately following the commodity classic uh, at the end of the month, I'll go right from, Houston back to DC and uh, join the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association uh, DC visit with Scott. And yeah. We'll have some great contact with our congressmen and senators and um, some other meetings, I'm sure, with staff. I, I would bet we'll get a chance to interface with some USDA folks and back there your presence and your voice helps make you relevant so um, it's not always fun to travel and be away from family for scott and uh, the rest of us that go back there but we think it's worth we think it's worth it yep you know on that note i'm just going to put in a little plug for our uh, sister organizations, I guess, the Idaho Grain Producers Association, which you can become a member of by visiting idahograin.org, the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association that you can also become a member of. Um, they There is strength in numbers. 
Yeah. The more people that they can say they represent, the more clout that they are given in those meetings um, with our nationals, with our congressmen. And we need all the all the voices that we can get to unify on this issue. Obviously, um, Scott has done a great job during the last half hour, kind of giving us a feel for the the reality of the circumstances. And there's there's never been a more important time. I'm sure people have said that forever, but it just keeps you know progressing. But there's never been a more important time than now to lend your support to these efforts. So very true. And I, I appreciate the, the Oh, go ahead, Scott. No, I was just gonna say I appreciate the opportunity to be here today and to hopefully educate folks about what that reality is. There's so much misinformation out there and and I'll call them half truths like, oh yeah, the litigation stay is going to put everything in a in a great position. Um, you know, we're we're gonna be more stable legally because of it. And it there's just simply no truth to it. One yeah, final point. I appreciate point. you clearing all of those up for us, Scott. This was a great opportunity <clears throat> for that. One other, one final point, though, even the Wheat Growers of Idaho Wheat Commission, we're primarily interested in the transportation, but every one of us use uh, power, electricity in the Northwest. And a big percentage of us recreate in these facilities and uh, we know or uh, benefit from the food produced uh, from the irrigation in some of the pools still on the lower snake. So it's not simply transportation that we're interested in. Um, affordable power and recreation and irrigation are really, really important to all of us. Great points. Right. The the effects are definitely far reaching Out, outside of just transportation. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Uh, we will post some links to some of those sister organizations in the comments, um, in the description on our, our YouTube channel and then our podcast. And if you're on and you want other people to have this information, please feel free to share it. This episode will be posted to your favorite podcast uh, provider and then YouTube and our website, idahoweek.org by the end of the week. So thank you so much again, Scott, for joining us and for all of the work you're doing. And we will see all of you at our next From the Field in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Brittany. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.